0: Automate your security framework compliance with sponsor Drata. Drata delivers continuous compliance, no matter how fast your company is growing. Find out more at drata.com/partner/day2cloud. That's d r a t a dot partner day 2 cloud
1: Hello, excellent human, and welcome to the day two cloud podcast. Today, we are adding another entry into our cloud essentials series, a way to examine some of the fundamental components that make up the cloud. And in this case, we're talking about storage. And I'm not going to do this alone. I've got Ethan Banks with me. Ethan, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Ned! Cloud Essential Storage. We got to put the data
0: somewhere. I think a lot of people who would look at networking is like, ah, we have to have it. Do I have to know anything about it? (laughs) I felt that way about storage over the years. I got to be honest. And so then uh, doing research for the show and digging in, uh, we focused on AWS in this case and all the different storage options. I was like, there is so much more to this than I was expecting. I was like, yeah, we can store your stuff,
1: and it's S3, and that was it. <laughs> no, there's a lot more to the story, Ned, a lot more. Oh, there's always more options. You know there's like 300-some-odd AWS services, and same goes for the other major clouds. But before we get too far into the storage, we did get some excellent feedback about our last Cloud essential show that dealt with VPCs. For those who might have feedback from this episode, you can submit that by going to packetpushers.net slash FU. The FU is for follow-up. Yes. But let's talk about... Got a few things that came up from someone that goes by Johnny to add to our VPC conversation. Johnny
0: in the Cloud wrote to us and uh, with just a couple of things to improve our accuracy, and he says, "Quote: Nice overview of VPCs, but there are some inaccuracies <gasps> when initiating VPN tunnels. AWS will initiate the tunnel creation of the startup action option is set to start." So, okay, right. So apparently that this is something we were talking about, the tunnels. Can you actually get the tunnel to stand up or not on its own? And we were complaining that there, there <laughs> really wasn't a way to do that. But apparently there is. So there's a startup action option set to start. We'll uh, make that happen. Okay. Uh, Johnny goes on to say, uh, not so much in an accuracy as an omission is that private link interface endpoints can be used to connect from one VPC to an AWS network load balancer in another of your VPCs. And this is cool. Because you can run client-server apps with the clients and servers in distinct VPCs without peering the VPCs, which was interesting. Yeah. Johnny goes on with one final point, And as proof that time flies, and this was actually my jaw hit the desk here. Transit Gateway was introduced at reInvent in 2018, almost five years ago, not three. Wow. Yeah. Feeling a little old there. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Johnny. Uh, Much appreciated with those corrections. And let's move on to our show today on storage. So this is going to be an overview of the different storage options that AWS offers. This is a show in and unto itself because of the various offerings. So we're not getting into the way Azure does it and the way GCP does it and the way anybody else does it, because there's enough to focus on just with (laughs) the big daddy uh, AWS. So Ned, I'm going to give an overview here of, uh, we got five services. We got S3, the simple storage service, EFS, the Elastic File System, FSX, which stands for a thing, we'll get into it, (laughs) Uh, Elastic Block Store, EBS, and then File Cache. And that's not to even mention a bunch of other auxiliary storage services. Absolutely. There are several more that maybe will come up along the way related to backup and, uh, you know, and so on. Right. So I guess we should start with S3, Ned?
1: Yeah, we'll start with S3. But first, I just want to mention that there is a sixth. Not quite service that we're going to talk about. And also, we're not getting into all the various database things. Many of those actually use something like EBS in the background. So they're using storage on top of storage. And something like DynamoDB is very specific to AWS and databases in particular. So we're not going to cover those. (laughs) We're trying to stick with like the core primitives here. And probably the thing that people know AWS best for is S3. So what is S3, Ethan? It is object storage. And they use
0: the the analogy of it's a bucket. It's a bucket you can throw things into. So in other words, if you're used to file systems that are hierarchical, this is not that. It's a, it's a flat uh, file system. You can store an object that'll have a URL the way that you can address it. It'll have a bunch of metadata uh, around it, up to 10 key value pairs called S3 object tags that describe that object objects can range in size from very small to as big as 5 terabytes. Mm-hmm. So object storage,
1: it's an object store that is what S3 is. Right? An object store is not something that is unique to AWS. Object store exists outside of AWS, but I think you nailed the key thing is here, don't think of it as a traditional file system because it's not. You're not browsing directories and working with files and and you don't have those constructs. You have something similar like each object has a sort of path to it and you can create a directory structure by giving them similar paths but under the covers it's not that and that's important to know
0: of course with s3 you've got uh, security of all kinds you can control access to every object that is in your uh, s3 bucket and however granularly you might want to you get versioning so if you need to recover an object to an earlier version if something goes sideways you can do that if you are concerned about your data, being resilient in some way. Well, yes, you can replicate your S3 data to other regions. And I believe the default position of S3 is to replicate it to at least another availability zone. There's a lot of different default positions Amazon takes, but you're nodding your head yet, right? They they
1: will mirror it to another AZ. yeah, Yeah, yeah. You do have a certain level of durability there. And I forget how many nines. It's like 11 nines of durability or something, meaning that you're definitely not going to lose the data, even if the whole region Goes down or almost definitely not going to lose the data. And in terms of availability, it is spread across multiple AZs within a region. So even if I particular az goes down you're probably still going to be able to access s3
0: for archival you can send your old stuff in your s3 bucket to s3 glacier glacier has the it's like something big and and slow and the idea is it's, it's cheaper storage so if you need to archive data that you're not using very much onto a cheaper tier of storage you can do that with s3 glacier and there's a service called s3 intelligent tiering that you pay for but it will put data where it needs to go to on the whole reduce your costs, right? AWS has got a lot of thinking and structure that they've put in place here around S3 with these auxiliary services. It's not merely a bucket with object storage capability. It's a lot of other peripheral stuff that goes along with it, where they put the data, where they mirror the data, what your options are for copying data around and archiving data that you don't need onto this slower quote unquote glacier storage. There's a lot there. It's actually a a rather robust offering. I would say that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One thing to note about, especially Glacier, is there is a charge for pulling stuff out of Glacier. And not only is there a charge for pulling stuff out of Glacier, uh, there's also a time delay there. They've never specifically said what Glacier uses from a physical media standpoint, but it's a safe assumption that tape is involved somehow. So just think about how long it takes to recover something from tape. And that gives you an idea of how long it takes to pull something out of Glacier. So it really is meant for archival purposes. So what do you use
0: S3 for? Why would you choose it over other sorts of AWS storage? Well, it depends on what you're what you're building, but the way Amazon positions S3, they say you can use it to build cloud native apps. And so if you've got an app that can access things in an object store, then uh, that is one of your use cases. AWS also mentions building a data lake. And why they say this is, AWS has a bunch of data analytics services, and so if you've got your data in one or more S3 buckets and wish to run analytics against that data, AWS offers services so that you can do exactly that and build that quote-unquote data lake. Another thing that uh, we were mentioning earlier, since an object store is not like a traditional file system with you know folders and directories and a lot of other features like file locking, if you don't need that kind of functionality, S3 might be the storage medium that is appropriate for you because you do get a lot of these other features that you might need depending on your application, again, like file locking with a more traditional file system. So what's it cost, Ned? What, what does S3 cost? And this is a stupid question to even ask, because when you look at S3 as a service and all these other services we're going to mention, how to compute the pricing and the cost of what you're paying for <laughs> can get rather complex, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of conditions and circumstances and performance envelopes and various things that have an impact on the cost. We're not going to get into all of those pricing formulas other than to try to give you a high level. So
1: at a high level, Ned, what would you say S3 costs? Well, at a very high level, you're paying for the storage cost. So that is going to be per gigabyte. And this, I believe, is the pricing for U.S. East 1. And this is list pricing, which no suitably large enterprise actually pays. But you're looking at something along the lines of 2.3 cents per gig for the first 50 terabytes. And then it drops down to 2.2 cents once you get above 50 to 450 and then to 2.1 cents once you get over 500. But that's just to store the data. There are other costs involved here. Uh, data transfer fees are in there, uh, as well as other things. If you're using stuff like intelligent tiering or you use infrequent access, which generally speaking, don't use infrequent access. That's why intelligent tiering exists. If you're using archive or, or Glacier, there's a charge for that. So the answer, like you said, is complicated. And that's why there's whole industries that do cost analysis and forecasting for cloud.
0: The thing that I would emphasize is look at that intelligent tiering service. Yes, you pay a little bit to have that intelligent tiering service run, but what it does is analysis on files you use and files you don't use, and the intelligent tiering will put the files you're not using into a cheaper tier of storage mm-hmm. is the big idea. And so the intelligent tiering service should pay for itself. Again, there's a lot to it. It's got its own pricing structure and so on. But understand that, as Ned just pointed out, there's a cost to store the data, actually have it on disk somewhere, and then there's a cost to access that data in some way. Is If you could think of those two as the main components that you'll be considering as you look at whether it's S3 or any of the other storage options we're going to look at, that's a good high-level way to consider what's going on here. Uh, as we get into these other ones, performance becomes another element. Like, how many IOPS are you trying to put through this storage system that you're buying that um, you will pay extra for that? Yeah.
1: So S3, do we do we cover it all, Ned? I think so. We could easily fall down a rabbit hole on any of the various aspects of S3, but <laughs> let's, let's keep this train moving. And let's move into the next one, which is EFS. So tell me, what is EFS, Ethan? It's a file system. It's
0: an elastic uh, file system. And uh, kind of an, one of the nice benefits of this is you don't have to do a capacity plan like you would. Like if you've ever stood up a Windows server, built a Linux box or something, and you're provisioning a disk volume, one of the things you think about very often is how big do I need this volume to be? Because if you have to resize it, there are tools these days that make it much easier than it used to be back in the day. But planning that size, capacity playing was, that was a thing. How big do I need to make this? Because if I have to resize it, it's going to be really annoying. <laughs> right. You don't have to worry about that with EFS the elastic uh, file service it is truly uh, fully elastic they provision for you what you need and then grow as you go as you add more files it will uh, make that file system bigger but again the key here it is a file system that you would think of if you're used to doing operating system work where you've got a file system that you attach to the operating system and that is where you store file. So it feels more more traditional in that way than that, I guess you would say.
1: Yeah, you would mount this to your EC2 instances for stuff that's not the operating system, basically. So if you're gonna put an NFS mount on a Linux box or you know Windows file share. EFS might be a good solution for you. Uh, It can expand beyond that and work with other services like Lambda functions, Uh, EKS can take advantage of it like any other NFS service. Kubernetes can attach and use it for volumes Um, or you can actually have on-premises servers Use it, which sounds a little funky, <laughs> but it is possible. It does, but EFS is is nothing special when you get down to
0: it. When you start looking under the hood, it's NFS. It is a, a network file system. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all it is. And if you're used to working with NFS and doing NFS mounts across the network, that's what AWS EFS actually is. You can mount it with Linux, workload across the network. You'd just be going across the VPN, I guess. I don't know how performant it might be for you. Maybe that's a question, but... But you could do it. Amazon says that it's it's really NFS 4.0 and 4.1 that it's supporting. And so it looks, acts, behaves, feels like because it is, in fact, NFS.
1: Right. So it's really going to be a matter of what's your use case for it. If you're just shipping off archival data to a file share somewhere and you want it to be up in AWS and your application doesn't speak S3, well, throw it in EFS instead. Might be a little more costly. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, first, so, like, what's the availability factor on this? How is it set up by default? By default, it is redundant
0: across multiple availability zones, which, again, of course, you're paying for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can configure it for replication to another region if you want. And as Amazon points out, you might actually have to do this depending on what regulations your data is governed by. You may be obligated to replicate it to different regions. It is also a system. EFS is integrated with AWS Backup, uh, another one of their services. So you can take advantage of that if you want. IOPS so performance this is your 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 input output IOPS are set up by default to be Quote, unquote, good enough is kind of how I felt about it after reading (laughs) Amazon's descriptions for a whole different bunch of workload types, and it does include some bursting there. So they kind of hit the performance tuning so that probably whatever you're using, it's going to be okay. However, if you have a very specific type of workload and you know you're going to need a very specific performance profile, you can configure that performance. And so therefore, you're going to get a, a more predictable bill rather than just saying, well, you're good enough tuning plus bursting, and then the bursting ends up resulting in a kind of an unpredictable bill because it, uh, it it bursted to the IOPS you needed, and wow, that was more expensive than I expected. That elastic performance can drive your bill up and down. So Amazon lets you lock it into a specific performance if you know exactly what you need. And security, like uh, like with S3Net, it's... Uh, VPC security groups you've got as one way to access NFS. Since it's a network service, you can govern access down at the network layer if you want with that VPC security group. And you can also have IAM as part of your security as well, which IM's everywhere, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's pervasive across all of AWS and might even deserve its own show or multiple shows, honestly. <laughs> That's quite a topic. Uh, one thing I want to mention about the IOPS is... The IOPS is based off of the amount of provisioned storage that you have by default. So if you need more performance, you can force it to provision more storage. They've made it more tunable over time, but the original iteration was entirely based around how much space you were taking up. And they would deliver X number of IOPS per like 50 gigabytes or 100 gigabytes or something like that. So you might provision more space than you actually need to get the performance you need and now they've added tuning so you don't have to do that
0: yet another feature is data at rest encryption is supported you can store those keys in amazon's key store i forgot the name of that service it's kms, acronym. <laughs> KMS <laughs> there you go that's the one but you you have that option as well mm-hmm. so Cost. What does this thing cost, Ned? It, uh, oh, a point you brought up on the S3, which is also true here and all these other services, is cost does vary depending on what data center you're you're pricing as well. So right. it, U.S. East pricing, U.S. West pricing might be different from what it is in Cape Town, South Africa, which might be different from what it is in Central Canada, et cetera. And the prices range sometimes widely, sometimes not that widely. It all depends. But Amazon wants to charge you for the region, for EFS. They're charging you by the region, by the effective storage price in one zone, and then the effective storage price standard. And what they're getting at there is compression. That, that's what they're getting at. If you compress the data, they assume two to one compression, and so that you're going to take up less space, and they estimate your storage costs are going to be roughly half. That's another component of There's a storage aspect, and then there's what other things are you doing? Where are you moving the data to? Where is it replicated to? How many copies of the data do you have? And then what performance tier do you want? All will factor into the ultimate price. Uh, But as a baseline of storage at U.S. East, 4.3 cents per gig gigabyte per month mm-hmm. in the one zone the compressed version is what you're going to pay there so so spendier than s3 at least for that level of service
1: right about double the cost uh, and if you go with the standard tier then it's uh eight cents per gigabyte per month yes so you're paying quadruple what S3, but if you need the functionality of EFS, then that's the solution you would go with. There's a somewhat similar service that I think we can jump over to now, which is FSX. And this is to address the fact that not everything speaks NFS and not everything is happy with the performance levels available in EFS.
0: Yeah, FSX lets you provision four specific kinds of file systems, and it's one of those, in my mind, as I'm going through this service and reviewing it, it's like, if you know, you know. If you know you need these, then you know you need (laughs) these. The four options that uh, Amazon is giving you under FSX are NetApp ONTAP, OpenZFS, Windows File Server, and Lustre. So if you have a workload that you know is going to need one of those four kinds of file systems because reasons, maybe it's an operational reason, maybe it's because we use NetApp everywhere and I want to to use that familiar ONTAP storage file system everywhere because that's what I know how to interact with. Okay, they'll give you that option uh open zfs windows file server luster maybe you've got again a workload that has to map to that kind of a file server because that's that's all that's supported you're doing a lift and shift trying to get it from your on-premises up into the cloud and you don't have a choice you can't re-architect the application to use something that would be i was going to say cloud native you know i guess (laughs) i mean these are native services in the cloud right to me they're throwbacks to what you were running on-premises right and things you might need to support that lift and shift effort you might have. Let's take a quick sponsor break. Drata, D-R-A-T-A, provides compliance automation. That means if you're working with a security framework like SOC 2, ISO 27001, PCI DSS, GDPR, HIPAA, CCPA, FIEC, various NIST standards, or CMMC, Drata helps. Over 3,000 companies use Drata, including Lemonade, Notion, and Fivetran. Drata collects information from your tech stack and maps it onto security frameworks using over 80 integrations, including AWS, Azure, GitHub, Okta, and Cloudflare. Drata offers automated, dynamic policy templates you implement to become compliant. Drata will continuously monitor your compliance state, so you'll know if a system becomes non-compliant and can alert the system owner. What if you need some advice? Drata has a team of former auditors who have conducted 500 plus audits available for your questions, including regular meetings and pre-audit planning. So say goodbye to manual evidence collection and hello to automated compliance by visiting drata.com/partner/day2cloud. That's d-r-a-t-a.com/partner/day2cloud,
1: bringing automation to compliance at Drata speed. Yeah, well, I mean, previously before FSX came out, if you needed Windows file server services or you wanted to run Luster or OpenZFS, you would spin up a bunch of EC2 instances, slap a bunch of EBS, which we haven't even gotten to yet, but basically the block storage and build your own cluster and share out your own file shares. And Amazon basically said, well, we'll do all that for you. And is it more expensive or cheaper? Hard to say. (laughs) <laughs> but it certainly you know lowers that administrative burden. I'm not running a Windows file server with file sharing. I just spin this up and I get a file share.
0: Main use cases we mentioned some of these already. It's kind of like if you know, you know. If you know you need it, then you know. But then also, uh, Amazon says maybe you're building an app that requires a specific performance profile because you're in the high performance computing world. You're doing you know machine learning, or you've got some specific data analytics, and you know to get the performance you need so that you get the numbers crunched in the time frame that is required, you must have one of these file systems. Okay, then there you go. It's a you know you know you know. Maybe you want to outsource business continuity to AWS as in you can like with these other services you need to want you want to copy this data az to az and in interregion to get that business continuity amazon i just want you guys to do that for me i don't want to have to worry about mirroring file systems all over the planet or to multiple data centers it's too hard it is too hard sometimes ask me how i know (laughs) uh if you (laughs) amazon you just do that for me and that appeals to you great uh, they also cited media and entertainment workloads that, as a vertical that would commonly maybe need one of these uh, file systems. What's it cost? Oh, brother, here we go. I mean, again, it depends on are you using SSDs or HDDs? Because you can pick. Are you using, again, compression? So you're getting 50% reduction. Well, it depends a lot on the kind of data that you're compressing. Amazon, I felt, was pretty optimistic in their two, assumption of two-to-one compression. Because if you're dealing with already compressed data or heavily encrypted data, you're not going to get much compression out of that. You just don't. You know, if, if you're dealing with a bunch of, like, MP3s, that's a, that's an example of a compressed file format. You can't compress it again and get two to one because it's already been squeezed to death. So, eh, you know, how much compression are you going to get? Again, if you know your data, you'll know what kind of compression you can get, which does, again, affect pricing. Amazon gives you formulas to compute the actual cost. And at first glance, I mean, it's just like, wait, am, am I in high school doing algebra right now? What's happening? <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> look at a thesis. It's another thing. Am I doing what region am I in? Am I doing a single availability zone or a multi-availability zone deployment? And then, you know, the the whole compression thing factors into it. And per file system type, and again, we mentioned NetApp ONTAP, OpenZFS, Windows File System, and Lustre, the prices all change. Right. And they change whether you're doing data deduplication or not uh, for a Windows file system, for example. And then built around that are various transfer charges and and so on. So what are you going to spend? I mean, this is not cheap,
1: I would say, no matter how you describe it, Ned. No, it's not. On the cheap side, if you're doing a single AZ with ONTAP, let's say, you know, it's it's actually somewhat comparable to EFS. If you're doing a multi-AZ in US East, you're paying cents per gig per month. But that's just like opening storage price. There's going to be other costs layered on top of that that you indicated. And then for the other file systems, like you said, each one has different pricing models and different add-ons. You can add additional throughput capacity or you want specific uh, IOPS, those kinds of things. So as a starting price, it's going to be more expensive than S3 for sure. It's, Probably going to be more expensive than EFS or at least comparable because they do do comparable things. Or you could build it yourself. You would use EBS to do such a thing. Yeah. Use EBS. (laughs) Yes.
0: Elastic Block Store. So, yet another storage type here within Amazon is elastic block store. If you're not a storage human and you're like, what what are we talking about blocks? We're talking about replicating what would be happening very low level talking to a disk drive, you know, blocks really way, way, way down at the fundamental level, low level storage. It's um, not so much of the hardware is abstracted from you in block storage. It, it's it's like you're talking to the block storage device directly is more the the big idea. So think uh, a storage area network, think uh, network attached storage. It's it's that you're putting a, a file system on and and uh, adding yourself. It's the disk, not a scheme to store data on the disk. It's not a file system. You attach EBS to a system and then put the file system on it yourself. Yeah, is uh, is how you would think about it.
1: Very similar to adding a LUN to an existing server that you might have or attaching a disk to a VMware instance. So if you're coming from that traditional on-premises background, you'd ask your storage admin to provision a LUN and show it to you know, one or more servers. And then you'd lay down a file system on top of that by formatting it and whatnot. So that's essentially what EBS is
0: doing. And as you're building out your EBS, it's going to ask you things that are more hardware kind of oriented. Like, oh, do you want to use SSDs or HDDs? Uh, How much IOPS do you want? How much disk throughput uh, do you want effectively? There are elastic volumes here. You still get that with EBS, which is nice. You can change capacity and your performance profile if you need to in flight with, uh, Amazon says, with no downtime. You know, as opposed to trying to do that in real life on, you know, real disk. Again, that would be a really big challenge depending on the system that you're working with, especially with the no downtime promise. Right. You get snapshots. So if you're used to uh, the VMware world of snapshots, you get this point-in-time copy of your data. I think uh, almost all of us, I'm sure, have used snapshots at one time or another. Heck, I still use them And in, uh, in Vulture, the cloud service where I host a lot of VPSs. I'll, I'll take a snapshot. And that's a whole VM image of what's going on there. But I assume what they're doing is just, Just literally taking like what I think of as a snapshot. They're just taking a copy of what's on disk and setting it off to the side plus a copy of what's in memory so I can bring the thing back online if I need to kind of thing.
1: Yeah, they're sending it to S3 in the background. So the snapshots are actually stored in S3 because they just take a snap and put it as a blob on S3. Ah, yeah, good to know. Yeah, your data is
0: spread across availability zones with uh, with EBS with Elastic Block Store, so you've got a lot of that resiliency and survivability that you would with all the other services. And then why would you do this? Why would you choose EBS? Well, Ned already alluded to one of them. You, you're standing up a file system. You just want to roll your own file system. So you you stand up EBS, attach it to an EC2 instance, and then pave over it with some kind of a file system. Uh, Amazon would cite the following use cases. You want to build a SAN in the cloud for I-O intensive applications. So you're going to stand up your own SAN. Mm-hmm. Wow, that just, okay, I've been thinking about that. That's got to be a really expensive
1: way to go. But okay. Yeah, it certainly could be. Uh, I guess the benefit to this is you can provision or spin down particular portions of the sand if it's the sort of flexible arrangement. So you could start small with a two node cluster that's offering storage to other things with some big storage volumes attached and then grow that as your needs uh, increase. And also, you can get as specialized as you want. So there are other third-party companies that offer storage services in AWS, and they basically build a SAN array using EC2 and some other fun, interesting tricks, and then offer that as storage services to you inside of your account.
0: So SAN, building your own SAN in the cloud, is uh, one use case that Amazon mentions. They also mention running relational or no SQL databases, which is something you had mentioned earlier, Ned, where you need your database to live on a particular kind of uh, a file system and you're looking for a specific performance profile and so on. There's our use case there.
1: Absolutely. And also, if you use their RDS service, which is their relational database service, That in the background is using EC2 and EBS to build itself. So a lot of the times what you'll see is that EBS is one of the fundamental building blocks of AWS services. So their higher level abstracted services, something you would call like platform as a service, is often built off of the primitives like EC2, EBS, and S3.
0: Boy, that's the way to go about it. Take what you got and then build more on top of it. No wonder Amazon keeps coming up with
1: new acronyms every reinvent. Boy, oh boy. I know. Before we get into cost, one quick thing about availability zones, because this is important to understand about EBS is each EBS volume exists in a single AZ. The data in that EBS volume is replicated to multiple nodes inside the single AZ, but it's not replicated across availability zones. So if that AZ goes down, you lose at least the access to that, e- that particular EBS volume. And you can only attach an EBS volume to an EC2 instance that's in the same AZ.
0: Well, that's interesting. Okay, because as I was doing my my reading and digging on this, the, as Amazon was describing this, they made it seem like yeah, you can spread this across availability zones. So that that nuance is is pretty important distinction from the other storage services, now.
1: Yeah, and from a durability standpoint, it's still very high levels of durability. But it's important to understand that you do want to take snapshots. And then those snapshots are going to S3, which is across multiple AZs. So if you needed to recover you could recover to a different AZ in the same region.
0: But it feels like more like a DR sort of business resiliency rather than a business continuity feeling. You, you could suffer some downtime if your local AZ goes down and that that EBS
1: uh, uh,
0: mount goes away.
1: And just like any other availability planning, you have to determine what's your appetite for downtime and does your application support running multiple instances in some sort of active-active or active-passive failover, in which case you can build it across multiple AZs with more than one EC2 instance. 11.9s, don't even talk to me now. That's how important (laughs) it is. (laughs) How much does this EBS service cost you, Ethan?
0: It varies widely. It depends on what sort of storage that you pick. Do you want a general purpose SSD? Do you want specific number of IOPS in your SSD? Do you want, and then on and on and on, the options and the checkboxes go, and you will pay for a certain number of IOPS. You will pay for a certain number of gigabytes per month, and it's it's math and a spreadsheet to, to figure it all out. There are a bunch of classes of EBS service that you get at range from as simple for the storage as uh, $0.08 cents per gigabyte per month, And then you get IOPS on top of that. They'll give you 3,000 IOPS for free. And then that would be a half a cent of a provisioned IOPS per month over 3,000. And then the list continues from there. There's a lot of them. And it's kind of like an EC2 instance where you're picking a a specific instance type that has a certain number of CPU and RAM and so on. You get a GP3 instance here, a GP2 instance, or an IO2 instance and so on, of different kinds of disk capabilities is how I think about it, essentially, that all have different pricing levels, and you're going to pay for A,
1: how much you store, and B, how fast the EBS is going to perform. Exactly. Since we are getting down to almost the physical layer here, they have different types of disk available, and those different types of physical media have different performance characteristics. And so they sort of bundle them under these larger categories of GP or IO, and then different generations of GP or IO. So that's why you'll see all these different acronyms and numbers and whatnot. It all bakes down to you can look into the documentation and see what the performance characteristics of any given tier are. As a little add-on to EBS, there is a separate storage option available to you in EC2 called instance store. And this is locally attached storage for EC2 instances. If you think about an EC2 instance, it's spinning up on some physical hypervisor and that hypervisor is going to have some amount of locally attached storage. And so each EC2 instance that spins up on that hypervisor has the option to have locally attached storage provisioned and presented to that instance. Of course, the way that AWS handles that is if that instance is terminated or stopped or even hibernated, the attached storage blanks out. It's gone. So it's very ephemeral. Huh. Yeah. So what's my use case for this thing? Well, it's generally pretty fast, depending on the class of EC2 that you select. You could get locally attached MVME SSDs available to your instance for ephemeral or temporary storage. So if you're caching files, if you have a lot of temporary files, if you need scratch space for your EC2 instance, Instance Store is perfect for all of those use cases, And it's included in the cost of your EC2 instance. So you're not paying anything to use this locally attached instance store. You just have to be aware of the limitations of it and the fact that if you do anything with the EC2 instance besides rebooting it, that storage goes away.
0: Yeah, well, it makes me think of ephemerality of containers in a microservices sort of an architecture. You know, I wonder, I'm thinking out loud here, because I did not run across instance stores. I was digging through all of the Amazon documentation. You know, was there a use case for attaching it to a container that is going to wink out of existence anyway, or is it not really a fit there? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't really work in that architecture.
1: I'm thinking out loud. That would actually be a really good fit if you're spinning up an EKS cluster. I don't know for a fact, but I imagine you could use the instance storage on that EKS cluster for container volumes that don't need to be persistent.
0: One more storage service we want to talk about from AWS net is a file cache service, which sounds kind of like your instance type service to me. The file cache service that AWS offers is, I don't want to say it's temporary, but it was like, you need to have a copy of files from a file system that's far away from your workload. So there's network latency. You need them close so you can work on them. You need that data set closer to you. You can stand up a file cache and have it mapped into these other file stores. And as you move data around, Amazon's like, oh, you need a local copy of that. It puts a copy in your local file cache. You have that file cache mounted as another file system on that workload. And then you can work on that data set locally rather than having to mount the file system that's across the network somewhere and is ends up slowing down your workload because, you know it's 5 milliseconds away or it's 50 milliseconds away or whatever it is you have that cache you know I- internal to you now so the intent is you've got some kind of fast copy of that data that's local it can be distributed around as many different places as you need it not like a CDN because it's more temporary than that you know kind of like that instance type it had more of that feel to me as I was reading it through and AWS just takes care of copying the files into the cache and they will also purge files out of the cache that haven't been accessed for a while. And again, why do you need this? Because you know, network latency is a bad thing. You don't want to be dealing with pulling files across the network. You want them local to you. So, Uh, Things like VFX rendering for, again, going back to that media and entertainment tier. Uh, HPC acceleration, you do high-performance computing. you got to have that data right near the workload. Uh, Machine learning again. Data analytics came up. And what does this cost? Well, it's another one of those spendy AWS services (laughs) where you get uh, 1,000 megabytes uh, per second per, et cetera, et cetera, all coming in at $1.33, $1.33 per gigabyte month. Yes, ooh, is the magic word just for the storage component uh, as you're tearing this up, it's really spending. So you definitely know you need this and you're going to be paying more if you don't have this. So there's this got to be a complex ROI calculation, but you're going to understand what
1: that is with your workload. Right. I got to imagine that people who were using AWS for VFX rendering or HPC acceleration, they were already building some sort of cache thing themselves. And AWS saw that and went, oh, well, we could just do that for you we'll charge you for it, but now you don't have to manage that component. So yeah, like you said, if you're already building something like this because you need it, well, now you know you need it and you can do that ROI calculation. Does it make sense to just have AWS handle it for me?
0: And again, it's it's a very expensive tier just for the storage. And then of course you're paying for transfer charges as well, two cents a gigabyte from Amazon data centers based in the US. And then it's more, maybe a lot more, depending on what other data centers you might <laughs> right. want to use it in. So yeah, it's spendy, but if you know, you know. That is a summary of the major aws storage offerings but there is so much more so much more for example you you want to do data migration you got to get data from on-premises to the cloud well there's data sync services there's the snow uh, family of products within aws that can help you with all that stuff there is hybrid cloud storage and edge computing sorts of offerings there's the storage gateway and again the snow family factors in here You've got uh, managed file transfer with the AWS transfer family of services. And then, of course, we've mentioned along the way various disaster recovery and backup services, including the Elastic Disaster Recovery Service and the AWS Backup Service, which we didn't touch on any of those other than passing (laughs) mentions.
1: So, I mean,
0: it gets ridiculous, all the different offerings.
1: Yeah, I think what's important to note is that all of those services are based off of the lower services that we've already talked about. Like the Snow family uses S3. And it uses the S3 protocol to move objects around. So all of these services are the larger and I won't say larger, but all of the platform as a service offerings that they talk about are using the same fundamental components underneath. So if you understand those fundamental components, then it'll make it easier to understand these higher abstracted services.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this Cloud Essentials episode. We know it's high level and uh, we know we get uh, various of you that listen to this. And some of you are very heavy into AWS and you're like... Guys, I know all of this. We know, we know. It's not for you. It's not for you. It's okay. You know, there's other people out there that are trying to pick up on some of these things, and and maybe, hopefully, maybe you did learn a little something from the uh, the hours of digging through Amazon documentation that Ned and I did, and or Ned's taught some of these things as courses over the years. So anyway, uh, virtual high fives to you for making it all the way to the end. We appreciate it. Again, if we got something wrong, if there's some nuance you want to add, or some details worth mentioning, in the next Cloud Essential Show, we'll read it out. If you send it to us, you can go to Packet pushers.net/fu which stands for follow up and send us your follow up comments and we'll uh, be happy to share them on the next cloud essentials show that we do. Packet pushers has a weekly newsletter, Human Infrastructure. Each issue is loaded with the very best stuff that we find on the internet, plus our own feature articles and commentary. It is free and it does not suck. Get the next issue via packetpushers.net/newsletter. And until then, just remember,
1: cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.